Good morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18 is where we're going to take our cues from this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through Father God, we thank you for this morning, um, recognizing, God, that we come to worship you, and it's all about you this morning, God. Uh, we trust that you brought us here, each one, for something this morning. We trust that your own word will go forward and do what it has to do, Lord God, uh, irrespective of the deliverer, Lord God, but for you, God, that your word, your powerful word will go forward. Still, Lord, I pray that you would use my mind, my tongue, uh, that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, that we would see the Lord Jesus in a more clear light, that you yourself would be lifted up high on the throne. And we pray this thing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, and uh, I want to just quick give you a, a quick uh, thanks to Pastor Ben for bringing, allowing me to be here. My name is Stephen Weathers. I'm one of the laity among you, and it is good again to be with you this morning. Um, I'm grateful, but just before we begin, I'm really grateful that we, we get to sit under the teaching of Pastor Ben, who I think um, is one of the most, uh, very, one of the best Bible teachers that, that probably is in this city and that I've heard. I'm, um, I'm super grateful for that. I don't know how you think about that, but I'm grateful. So uh, I hope it's not a letdown today, um, but I'm grateful that uh, we got Pastor Ben. And so, and if it is a letdown, then wait for next week or if, if you're up next week and, you know, <laughs> but I'm just wanting to make sure we say thank God for the man of God of this house. And uh, I'm just grateful for this pastor. Um, Now, as many of you know, we've been taught from the series of Ephesians, being the church, from the, the letter, and I'll, make you sit, I'll let you sit down in a minute, just give me a second here, uh, from the letter of Ephesians here uh, that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, which is located today in uh, the city of Selkirk, Turkey, right? Um, Paul is, is in prison as he's writing this letter, and, and apart from the central point of what Paul is getting at today, I think we'll get a chance to consider why Paul felt as if he needed to write this letter in the first place. So, as we look at this passage, uh, I pray that we could understand what God would have for the church. The, the series title that we have is Being the Church, and that's where we're coming from today. Look in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, and it reads, and I'm using the New King James Version. It says, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision 
made in the flesh by hands, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting the death to death, the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Please be seated. Now we've no doubt all heard of what it means to be homeless. But what does it mean to be stateless? When Saeed Masi went to federal court in Australia last year with the final hope of gaining acceptance into a country, a country, any country, it was his latest hope to be admitted into a country. His father died when he was young and his mother either died or abandoned him at six years of age. Afterward, he passed through a few orphanages. But when he was trafficked and enslaved in Belgium, he wound up having to escape that situation. After escaping the situation of slavery, he went on to Norway. But he became involved in a gang to survive. While this was the most stable time in his life, he escaped gang life and headed over for New Zealand. But while he was headed to New Zealand, He had a layover in Melbourne, Australia. He was stopped in Australia, but once he was in Melbourne, he was unable to answer the many questions about his own origin. Saeed was raised in a detention camp for refugees before his mother died. He thinks he was born in the Canary Islands in Spain, but he doesn't have the documents to prove it. For the last six years, if his situation is the same as it was last year, He's been transported transported from place to place, spending most of his life in detention, even though in none of these countries has he been charged with any crimes. He's never accepted by any of these countries. He's not a citizen of any of them. And when he finally said, I want to go back to Europe, they said, no, you're not a citizen of any country. They told him he had no choices. Saeed has no parents, no inheritance, no country, and now that the courts have ruled in Australia, no hope of having a country. Saeed is what we call, what the United Nations calls, a stateless person. He's a stateless person. The UN Refugee Agency says that statelessness is often the product of policies that aim to exclude people deemed to be outsiders, even if they have deep ties to a particular country. The United States itself has 218,000 stateless individuals. And across the world, there may be around 
10 million of the persons who fit this category. They just don't have a country. They just don't have an inheritance. They don't have people in a country. Pursuit, a research firm in Australia, headlined in articles that stateless people have no country, no rights, and no hope. And beyond their exposure to discrimination, oppression, and persecution, stateless persons often cannot access basic rights, such as housing, education, and health care. And in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he desperately wants them to know this following truth. In fact, he begins with the passage with the phrase, therefore. And, and the following truth that he, he lets them know is that you, as Gentiles, were the same way. You were stateless, having no hope without God in the world. So he begins with the passage with the phrase, therefore. And, and as, he, as we discussed last week, and if you were in class last week uh, in the 915 class, and we mentioned it this morning, uh, therefore is a conjunction. More fully, more fully, it is a conjunctive, what we call a, a conjunctive adverb. That means it is intended to relate the statement that comes after it to the statement that comes before it. Now we can talk about many conjunctive adverbs and how many there are. There are tons of them. We won't mention them today. But I just want you to know that whenever you see this conjunctive adverb, you need to do something. Whenever you see this particular conjunctive adverb, you need to do something. Whenever you see the adverb, the conjunctive adverb, therefore, you need to ask what the therefore is there for. Anytime you read the Bible, this one is the easiest one. You just need to ask what the therefore is there for. Um, why then, is what we're asking, does the apostle determine essentially that he's going to essentially repeat himself and tell us what he just told them in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2? Because that's what 11 through 18 is. It's kind of a repeat of what he just said. Why does he feel like he has to do this? In, in, in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God had great love for you and was rich in mercy, and he turned you into this masterpiece of his. That's what he says. In, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, he essentially follows a similar trajectory. He says, you were without Christ and hopeless, but Christ came near and brought peace and gave you access to the Father. What's, what's the real difference? He follows a similar trajectory. Why does he need to drive this point home? Are they not listening? Does he think they'll miss the point? And the, and the reason why he drives this point home is because he's making a particular transition from how they might be thinking as individuals to how they ought to be thinking as a collective body of Jesus Christ. That's significant because we live in America and individualism is all the rage. It's all about what you do and how you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and how well you, how hard you work. And it rarely has to do with how hard I work and what my work actually means for someone else. 
It rarely has to do with, as our elder Oscar mentioned this morning, that we're doing this because of a, a, a bigger picture than who we are. And we need to hear this. The Apostle Paul makes this point very plain to them. He's, he's shifting their gears for them. And he wants them to remember that they were first separated from God. He says, look at what he says. He says, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision made in flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant to promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is making the point that it is not just you as an individual among many people who were dead in trespasses and sins. It is you and everybody like you who are your people who were doomed to that hopelessness. He uses the word, we know that because he uses the word Gentiles. The word Gentiles, which is the same word from which we get our word ethnic group. It's the word ethne. He uses the word ta ethne. And it's the same word we get our word ethnic group from. Paul is speaking not any longer to them as individuals. He's speaking to them and saying, you people of Ephesus, you Gentiles. And he's making the point for them that this is bigger than just you as an individual. He uses the word Gentiles. And now when you and I read the word Gentile 2,000 years later, a common mistake is made by us. We always tend to think when we read in the Bible the word Gentiles, that Gentiles are always the other people. Uh, I, I want to know, uh, you need to know, I want you to know that when, when, when Paul says Gentiles had no share in Israel, uh, that, were no, that we were strangers, that there were strangers of the covenant, had no hope and were without God in the world, unless you were born of Jewish heritage, he means you. Look at somebody say, he means you. Yeah, unless you were born of Jewish heritage, he means you. You are the ethnic groups that he was speaking of 2,000 years ago. Now, I know you say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, it's not really a big deal. No, it's a very big deal. Because so many times throughout history, because people have placed themselves in the role of the Jews, thinking that they somehow were God's chosen people, they were able to heap atrocities on other people. We don't need to talk about manifest destiny, do we? This, this nation is very clear on that kind of, we can, we can go back in the history and, and point out in our own nation, where when we take on the fact that God has told us that we're going to do a thing that we never see written in scripture about us, we need to be real careful. We need to understand that when Paul was talking about Gentiles, we were included in that, unless you were of Jewish origin. It meant that you, friend, not just as an individual, but you, your mama, your daddy, your grandmama, your granddaddy, your ancestry were doomed to a hell. It, it needs to be said. And I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm in that number. It's me too. I'm a part of the ethne. And we need to make sure that we're clear that when Paul was saying that, he was saying that anyone who was not a Jew was falling in that category. Strangers, alienated from the commonwealth. Paul makes another point away, along the way as, he's, as he makes the statement about the, the circumcision. He, he, he addresses 
this derogatory comment in that passage I just read. He, he addresses the derogatory comment that Jewish people would make about other ethnic groups in the ancient world. You saw it. He makes the side remark in verse 11. He says, therefore, I want you to remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, and then he goes off rail. He says, uh, who, are, who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision made in the flesh by hands? Now, that's kind of his derogatory statement. I'll, I'll explain it. He's pointing out that the term uncircumcised is a Jewish way of insulting non-Jews. And you know what I'm talking about. You, you remember when David, for example, was getting ready to fight Goliath. You remember what he said, right? He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? See, because David, like any other Jew, would have looked at you and I and thought, mm, we are unclean. Uh, and, and, and nothing wrong with that. God had chosen them. There's a reason why they think that way, uh, except for the fact that the New Testament uh, does shift the trajectory somewhat. And, and we need to make sure we understand that Paul understood this. Paul knew that, yes, we're Jews, and yes, we have been given a truth, but we're no better than anyone else. I'm going to show you that in a minute here. He points out that the term uncircumcised is a Jewish way of insulting non-Jews, or at the very least, at the very least, jabbing at them, because they are people who don't have a relationship nor a covenant with the Father God. The, the, the people, those of us who were Gentiles, um, didn't have that relationship. We don't have an Edenic covenant, an Adamic covenant, a Noahic covenant, a Mosaic covenant. We don't have any of those covenants. And, and we barely get the new covenant, <laughs> right, which is what we live under. We don't have that. We didn't have that before the Lord Jesus. And Paul was making it clear uh, to that, that I know that he says, now, while I'm telling you this, I know that the Jewish people kind of derogatorily call you the uncircumcision. And then he says, and, but he, he says they call themselves. He's actually coming to the defense of the Gentiles. And what he's doing is he's discounting the insult that has often been leveraged against non-Jewish people. And he does so using two phrases in the passage. We won't go through the whole passage, but I want you to see. He does so using two phrases in the passage. The first phrase he uses, he issues, is his own derogatory comment about how the Jews identify themselves as circumcised. He says, he says you're called to the Gentiles. He says, you're called the uncircumcision by the circumcision in the flesh made with human hands. That, that's Paul's way of pointing out that he recognizes that, that Jewish people like to point out, and I'm going to talk about Jewish people a couple of thousand years ago, they like to point out that they are, they are circumcised, but, but he remarks about this circumcision, that it's really just made with human hands. Now, there's a reason he says that. He remarks and says it's just made with human hands. The thing that they think makes them so clean and holy is the very act that keeps them in opposition to God. While circumcision was indeed the sign of the covenant for the Jew, Paul helps the church at Ephesus understand, the Gentile church in, 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 uh, plainly, at Ephesus understand that there is a new covenant. And it is not by circumcision or by any other work that any of us perform. Otherwise, as Galatians chapter 5 verse 4 says, you've fallen from grace. I, I want to make it plain here, if you or I think that there is anything else that gets us close to God and, in, and, and accepted by God besides the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 
any work that we think we can do, any amount of coming to church you think you can do, watching online, wherever you are, any amount of, think, of doing good that you think you can do that makes you right with God, any sense of morality, high sense of morality that you have about yourself, thinking that you are right with God because of it, the Bible says you have fallen from grace. This is what Paul is, is trying to point out. He says they're, they're trying to insult you by calling you the uncircumcision, and they call themselves the circumcision like they, they got something going on. Paul says, no, 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 that, that's a fall from grace. Yeah. Yeah. He, says, he says they call themselves the circumcision, but it's still made with human hands. Yeah. Now, the second phrase he uses is found in verse 14. Let's, let's read 13 and 14 to see the second phrase. Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is, that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two. And that's how he made peace. Paul makes the point. That you non-Hebrew people who were far off have been brought near. That's a good thing. But Paul understood because the Jewish people who recognize, and Christian Jews even, who would recognize their nearness would sometimes take their nearness and mis mistake their nearness for something that is not. Paul understood that the nearness of God to an individual or to a whole people group is only the degree to which God has illuminated himself to those people. But, but what he also knew is that whether you were far off without illumination, any illumination to God, or whether you were near and have seen and received the illuminations, the revelations, and the mysteries of God, you were still lost. You were still without hope. You were still without God in the world. Let me say it this way. Nearness to God does not mean that you will be saved. It simply means that God gave you the opportunity to be saved. Nearness to God. You can, you can do all the things you, you want to do to show, show respect for God and honor God. But until you actually do the thing that God calls you to do through the blood of Christ, you're still lost. No amount of going to church can help you. No amount of reading the Bible can help you. No amount of being good can help you. You're going to have to come through by the blood. That's the only way to get there. Now, Paul, Paul lets them know that until the blood is activated in your life and Jesus Christ saves you, you're still lost. Let me say it this way. Um, the Jewish people prided themselves on being near. But until the due time where God sent forth his son, born of a woman, who shed blood on the cross, they were just like the rest of us, lost and without hope. Let me, let me also give it to you another way. Uh, I grew up in Miami, Florida, and my mother sometimes would take us to the beach. Um, you may be too young to remember, my brother is here today, and, uh, and she would take us to the beach. And uh, I probably was about five years old. In fact, you weren't even born yet, now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> probably was about five years old. One day we were at Hollover Beach, now, now, my cousin, Vincent, was with us that day. Vincent's about 10 years older than I was 
Uh, and, and, and now, now I was in the water at the beach and my mom was on the shore in the sand doing whatever it was she was. I don't know where my older brother was, uh, but, but I know that I wasn't paying attention so much to them. I was just in the water and I was near the shore. And, and even though I was near the shore, apparently I began to drift out because I realized my feet weren't touching the bottom anywhere. I, but I was still near the shore. Right. I was near the shore. The shore wasn't probably. But I, I mean, I couldn't tell. I was a little kid then, but it wasn't far. It wasn't wasn't maybe in the first two rows there. I was still near the shore. You understand what I'm saying? I was near the shore, but my feet had left the sand and I couldn't touch the ground anymore. I need you to know what happens when you're near something, but you're not on it. Right. I was near the shore. Uh, but it really didn't matter that I was near the shore because my feet couldn't touch. It really didn't matter whether I was in five feet of water because I hadn't yet reached five feet or 50 feet of water or 500 feet of water. I was still drowning. Yeah. I started to drown. Yeah. And <laughs> Jesus yeah. had Vincent there, apparently. And I couldn't get out the water. My mom wasn't going to come get me. <laughs> She wasn't going to come get me. We'd have both been out there. <laughs> uh, but Vincent Tyler was there. And Vincent came and got me. It didn't matter whether I was near the shore or far from the shore. I was still in a state of deadness. I was about to die. And Paul was trying to make, make sure the Gentiles knew that. He said, you know, whether you're near or far, whether we say we're near or we say you are far, that don't matter. They were trying that they were trying. The Jews would would discount these persons. But I have to I, I want you to know. Um, in Paul's second phrase in verse 14, it, he just makes it plain. It doesn't matter whether you're near or far. Jesus Christ saw the drowning ocean of sin. He came and got you and he dipped you into his fountain of blood. That's what he did. That's what he did. And if you would accept that it's the blood of Jesus that cleansed you, not the work, not the work that you do to get back. Uh, if you'll accept that, that he cleansed you and he made you whole. He killed the punishment of the commandments that were killing you and all who were like you and all who were like you, because that's the point of this passage. You can have peace. Now, I need to I need to flip something that that I didn't put in my notes. I should have put this in the notes here. Um, it's important that you understand. I'm talking to you about how Jews thought about Gentiles, but you need to understand why Paul wrote this message here, because Paul's in prison as he's writing this message. He's writing this message to the to the Gentiles. So so what must have happened is somewhere along the line, it was the Gentiles then who began to look back at the Jews or the Gentiles who began to look at other Gentiles and somehow think that they were superior or somehow think that they did not need to, to connect with them, somehow think that the body of Christ was just for them. This is what we must, have to, we must affirm when we look at this. And, and you, you don't have to take my word for it. You can simply ask the question. You can ask the question. I wonder if Paul's words right here, about them becoming a people who weren't just individuals, but a people who were Gentiles. I wonder if it took effect. I wonder if it made sense to the, the, the Ephesian church. And I wonder if they began to change what they did. I don't know, but here's what we do know. 
in the Bible of the letters that Paul wrote, we only have one church that we see 30 to 40 years later in the Bible. That's the church at Ephesus. We see it in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. I won't go there, but hear it. We see it in the book of Revelation. And what does John write to the church at Ephesus? He tells them about how great they are at their doctrine and how, they, how great they are at making sure that they, they know those people who are evil and how great they are at, 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 um, at, at making their church all good, right? He praises them on these issues, but with all that Jesus was praising them about, he says, you're still about to lose your lampstand. I want you to know this, this, this message that John wrote about the church at Ephesus was now 30 some years later, 35, 40 years later. And what had happened to the church at Ephesus? Here's what he says. You know it well. He says, you've left your first love. More rightly translated, more rightly translated, and some of your Bibles do translate it this way. You've left the love you had at first. Hear what I'm saying. The Ephesian church gets a letter from Paul 30 to 35 years earlier saying, hey, you need to make sure you you recognize recognize that you yourselves are not just here by yourselves, but you have a group of people that you need to carry with you. Uh, You need to show them love. This is what Paul says. I'm going to show you something in a minute. Uh, Here we in in the Revelation chapter two, apparently it had not taken root. Because Jesus says, I'm about to move your lampstand from its place because you've left the love you had at first. What was the love they had at first? Was the love they had at first the love for Jesus Christ? This is what most scholars say. I disagree. I say what the love was that they had at first was what Paul tells them in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15, Paul, doesn't, Paul says, I, when I heard of the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus and, listen to it, your love for all the saints. That's the love they left 30, 40 years later. That, that now, didn't matter what, how great their church was, Jesus says, I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place if you don't return that love. What does that mean for Strong Tower? We can be a great church, can't we? We can learn to learn and love the, the, the word of God. I think that's beautiful. And, and, but, but I think the, the, the more challenging part of these things for me is, Lord, how do I love the person next to me? Yeah, yeah. How do I really love them? Because it's that thing that misses. If we miss that thing, then Jesus says, I'm, I'm ready to remove your lampstand from his place. I'm, I'm still not sure what that ever means. I, I just... <laughs> I just know it, it don't sound good, so I don't want it to happen. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I, I never can get why it just don't sound good. Jesus didn't sound like he was playing. And I say, nah, we don't need to do that. So, but in, in the one way, the one sure way I know that we get to be those people whose lampstand is not removed yeah. is we become people of love for ourselves, yeah. for one another, yeah. and for that bigger world. Yeah. That's what the scriptures teach. And so when Paul writes this letter, he, he's writing, and it's not clear yet as to whether this church got it, because we see this is the one church, Paul spent more time with this church than any other church, and it's not clear as to whether or not they got the message, because we see John having to write that Jesus is about to remove your lampstand from his place. Here, here's what we know. Um, Paul makes the second phrase. The second phrase, 
in, in verse 14, it doesn't matter whether you're near or far, Jesus saw you. He came, and the phrase, the second phrase he makes, the fr- second phrase he makes is that, uh, that it was um, he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. So Paul recognized, like, 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 like Vincent himself was my savior on that day. I couldn't do anything on myself, for myself that, at that moment. And, and likewise, that's what Paul says. He says, uh, Paul says, near or far, because Paul puts himself in the near category because they've been illumined, but he recognizes uh, it wasn't the people who were near that helped me get saved. It wasn't the people who were far that helped me to get saved. He himself is my peace. Now, here's the question you have to ask. Is, is, is he himself your peace? I, I, I ask that question because in the church I do see things. You know, uh, the, church, the city of Ephesus was a city that was surrounded by idols and superstition and things of that nature. And I think it's, it's, it's helpful that we are mindful of that. But, but even in the church, we have certain idols that we don't call idols. In fact, we call them uh, necessities, right? Uh, I, I, but I've seen Christians use the church as an idol. But it's not the church who saved me. No, he himself yes. saved me. I, I've seen Christians talk about the Bible, what the Bible says. No, no, the Bible is a book about what God says, what he himself has said. We call that bibliolatry, right? I, I've seen, I've seen people, even the cross can be sometimes an idol. The cross is only good because he himself died on the cross. There were hundreds of crosses, by the way. People died on the cross all the time. That was just a thing that Rome did. But when Jesus died on the cross, he himself became our peace. And the question is, do you submit yourself? Is your, is, your, is your faith in the church? Is your faith in the cross? Is your faith in the Bible? Or is your faith in he himself, the living Lord Jesus, who makes those things relevant? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through his own resurrection. I know you don't feel me now. I get you. I get you. You don't feel me now. But I, I'm just telling you, you won't make it to heaven if you think it's the Bible. No, it's Jesus. That's not my words. That's what Jesus said. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But they talk about me. Oh, my God. We got a God who we got a God who through the blood on Calvary saved us. And whatever the Bible is speaking of is speaking about that one, that person, Jesus Christ. And the question is, as Christians, are we are we sometimes like the people in Ephesus, are we sometimes idolatrous, even with our Christian trinkets? We need to be real careful about that. I just want to throw it out your way. That was for free. <laughs> um, finally, friends, I'll just stop right here. Paul makes the point that the peace that you've received was never intended for you as an individual. Nor was it intended for you to enjoy with just your people. No. Look at what Paul says in verse 15. Uh, we'll start at verse 15, but in the, in the second half is where we'll pick up. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, 
that is, the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, then he says, so as to create in himself, in, in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. He, he's, he's planning on making peace by creating one new man from the two, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, and that's how the death of enmity takes place. That's how the hostility takes place. That is, he put the enmity, the hostility, as your Bible says it that way, to death on the cross. And it's important that we understand that this Jesus, it, it, it wasn't that he, he made hostility die between you and I. That, that's not how he did it. Uh, but we know that we have a lot of walls up between you and I, don't we? It, it was that he, he made it possible by putting himself on the cross and giving each people group an opportunity to come to him. And by extension, when we come to him for himself, somehow it's supposed to mean that the hostility between now my brother is gone. And he uses the word reconciliation. The word reconciliation, most often when it's used in Scripture, is not a word that has anything to do with me and you being brought together. The word reconciliation, most times when you see it in Scripture, has to do with you and I and God being brought together, me and God being brought together. That's important. We can't break the walls down. The walls have been broken, but we can't come together unless we reconcile with God. And this is the challenge that we see now. I mean, we, we need to be asking that. Friends, friends, that word reconciliation, I think part of the difficulty is, and why we still today even see division, much division in the church, is because we haven't probably properly understood that word reconciliation. It's important to note that God didn't make peace by removing the hostility between Jew and Gentile. He made peace by removing the hostility between people and himself. But we need to see reconciliation rightly. In order to allow the hostility to tru truly die, we need to see it rightly. Most of us think reconciliation is us coming together alongside and linking arms. And it's not. It's not about men coming together. Rather, the word reconciliation actually means that we exchange and, and what are we exchanging? We're exchanging our lives for God's. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to, to be sin for you and I as a people so that I might become righteousness. He, he, came, he came so that he could come with the good news and I, can ex, I could exchange the, the, the beautiful garment for my despair. Uh, I, can give, I can get the oil of joy, and he takes the mourning. Uh, the garment of praise, and he takes the spirit of heaviness. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to exchange my life with his, and that's what reconciliation is. It's not me just coming alongside and, and, being, and being friendly with you. 
It's exchanging lives. And if we can do it with Jesus, then we should be able to, though I know we have not done so well so far, but we should be able to do it with one another. But in fact, it is still a true statement that the 11 o'clock Sunday morning hour is the most segregated hour of the week. Now, I'll say this because I, I can tell you there's a lot of ways that we, we can, um, <laughs> there's a lot of ways that we can, we can take that. But I can tell you this, uh, that hour has everything to do with Ephesians chapter 2. That if you can't get there, if you can't understand that, 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 that in this country, and I'm just, I, this, this is where we come, this is where, where Ephesians chapter 2 can help us, right? In this country, we still wrestle with racial churches. And if you can't start a church or have a church that is focused on, on bringing all kinds of people in, you might not shouldn't be starting a church. That's, that's, not, that's not me. That's what you see in the new covenant. You need to be real careful about that. The new covenant says that God came for people, all people, and he brought Jew and Gentile together. And I'm here to tell you, the apostle Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to know that. And he wanted them to know that you don't get to just you don't get to just accept Jesus and then determine that he's for just you. He's not just for us. He's for the world over. And, and so so it's because Jesus Christ and, uh, came and he reconciled us to God that we should be able to see clearly that he's already removed the walls that we somehow have trouble because we keep re-erecting them. May God give us strength in that. It was because Jesus came and reconciled us to God that we should be able to see that clearly. When we're able to see it clearly, when we're able to see it clearly, when we're able to recognize that it was he himself that came and did this for us. Then Paul in verse 18 says, and now you have access with the father. But, but wait, what father is that? The same father that he started out Ephesians with. The father who has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. So that, so that when we see rightly that we're supposed to be unified, and when we recognize that we don't unify because I'm good at it and you're not, we reconcile, we, we, we're reconciled because Jesus came and did something already for us that if we just walk in it, if we just walk in it, we all can recognize the access that all of us should have before the Father. And none of us is lacking. I think it's an interesting thing. He writes this to the, the church at Ephesus, um, and he writes this father of every spiritual blessing. Excuse me, this is not in my notes. I'm just trying to think about uh, as he's writing this, this, uh, this, this letter to the church at Ephesus, it's really important that he does say to this church, he says to them, uh, you've been blessed by, blessed be the God of our Father who's, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. He writes this to the church at Ephesus because he knows who he's writing to. It's Ephesus, right there in Ephesus, where this huge theater is, is there, 25,000 uh, seats on it. It's, it's Ephesus right there, though, where, where what, is, what, what has mythologically been, been said is that the, 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 the statue of Diana, or Artemis, which you see in Acts chapter 19, where the Apostle Paul, he's run out of the city because of this, that this statue is there, and the statue has a woman with many breasts, right? And the many breasts imply that she is the giver of all things. So Paul makes sure he makes the point, no, no, 
Uh, you have access to the Father, the same Father who He is the blesser of every spiritual blessing. He didn't want to say her name, no doubt, because had he done it, he would have probably caused an uproar. But he's making the point that we have a father who has given us, has, is prepared to give us everything we need to live out this faith. In fact, the apostle Peter says it in another way. He tells us that, that, there's, that, that we have all things pertaining to life and godliness. I say this so that you and I might be focused on the one who himself saved us and not the idols around. And that we could recognize that in every way, God is ready. God is ready to be the giver to us if we would ask. And this is what Jesus said. He says uh, that we should be asking that the things in heaven be done on earth. You've been given access to every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. I've been given access to every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Together, we get that access. And I pray that we will remember that truth so that together we can be those who give this gospel to a world who needs it. Father, in the name of Jesus, we would call on you and say, help us to be people of love. Help us to be those in the Lord Jesus who together will love one another. And God, even as we have, hear a message like this, we recognize the enemy will do everything he can to keep us divided. Not just in here, but Lord, across the world, the church, he would do whatever he can to keep us divided. Whether it's denomination or gender, Lord, or race or whatever, wealth, Lord, he'll do anything he can. But God, I'm asking you. Help Strong Tower, help each one of us protect our hearts in this place so that as far as we're concerned, we're pursuing peace so that all men might experience your peace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.